Chapter Three of the Story of a Whim by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Like Many Waters. Chapter Three. And what are you going to say to her? The young man felt a rising tendency to swear. He'd forgotten all about the fellows and their agreement to meet and spend a festive day out. So great was the spell on him that he forgot to put the feminine things away from curious eyes. There he stood foolishly in the middle of his own floor, with a bunch of weeds in his hand, which he hadn't the sense to drop. Far off the sound of a cracked church bell gave a soft reminder, which the distant popping of firecrackers at a cabin down the road confirmed, that this was Christmas Day. Christmas Day, and the face of the Christ looking down at him tenderly from his own wall. The oath that rose to his lips at his foolish plight was stayed. He couldn't take that name in vain with those eyes upon him. The spell wasn't broken even yet. With a quick settling of his lips and daring in his eyes, he threw back his head and walked over to the glass face to fill it with water. It was like him to brave it out and tell the whole story now that he was caught. He was a broad-shouldered young man, firmly built, with a head well set on his shoulders. Except for a certain careless slouch in his gait, he might have been fine to look upon. His face wasn't handsome, but he had good brown eyes with deep hazel lights in them that kindled when he looked at you. His hair was red, deep and rich, and decidedly curly. His gestures were strong and regular. If his face didn't have a certain hardness about it, he would have been interesting. But that look made one turn away disappointed. His companions were both big men like him. The Englishman was loose-jointed and awkward, with pale blue eyes, hay-colored hair, and a large jaw with loose lips. He belonged to that large class of second or third sons, with a good education, a poor fortune, and very little practical knowledge how to better it, so many of whom came to Florida to try growing oranges. The other was handsome and dark, with a weak mouth and daring black eyes that continually warred with one another. Both were dressed in rough clothes trousers tucked into boots with spurs, dark flannel shirts and soft riding hats. The Englishmen wore gloves and affected a certain loud style in dress. They carried their riding whips and walked undismayed upon the bright colors of the rug. Oh, I say now, get off there with those great clods of boots, can't you? exclaimed Christie with sudden housewifely carefulness. Anybody'd think you were brought up in a barn, Armstrong. Armstrong put on his eyeglasses, he always wore them as if they were a monocle, and examined the rug carefully. Oh, I beg pardon. Awfully nice, ain't it? Sorry I didn't bring my patent leathers along. Remind me next time, please, Mortimer. Christie told the story of his Christmas gifts in as few words as possible. Somehow he didn't feel like elaborating it. The guests seized upon the photograph of the girls and laughed hilariously over it. Takes you for a girl, does she? said Mortimer. That's great. Which one is she? I choose that fine one with snapping black eyes and handsome teeth. She knew her best point, or she wouldn't have laughed when her picture was taken. Victoria Landis's eyes would have snapped indeed if she'd heard the comments about her and the others, but she was safely out of hearing far up in the north. The comments continued most freely. Christie found himself disgusted with his friends. Only yesterday he would have laughed at all they said. What made the difference now? Was it that letter? Would the other fellows feel the same if he read it to them? But he never would. The red blood stole up in his face. 
He could hear their shouts of laughter now over the tender girlish phrases. It shouldn't be desecrated. He was glad indeed that he'd put it in his coat pocket the night before. The letter, the pictures, and the things seemed to have a sacredness about them, and it went against the grain to hear the coarse laughter of his friends. At last they spoke about the girl in the center of the group, the clear-eyed, firm-mouthed one he'd selected for Hazel. His blood boiled. He could stand it no longer. With one sweep of his long, strong arm, he struck the picture from them with, Ah, oh, shut up, you make me tired, and picking it up, tucked it in his pocket. At this point his companion's fun took a new turn. They examined the table decked out in blue and lace. The man named Mortimer knew the lace collars and handkerchiefs for woman's attire, and they turned upon their most unwilling host and decked him in fine array. He sat helpless and mad, with a large lace collar over his shoulders. Another hung down in front, arranged over the bureau cover, which was spread across him as a background, while a couple of lace-bordered handkerchiefs adorned his head. And what are you going to say to her for all these pretty presents, Christy, my girl? laughed Mortimer. Say to her? gasped Christy. It hadn't occurred to him before that he would need to say anything. A horrible oppression was settling down upon his chest. He wished that all the things were back in their boxes and on their way to their ridiculous owners. He got up, kicked at the rug, and tore the lace finery from his neck. Stumbling on the lavender slippers, which his tormentors had stuck on the toes of his big shoes. Why, certainly, man, I beg your pardon, my dear girl, continued Mortimer. You don't intend to be so rude as not to reply or say, I thank you very kindly. Christie's thick auburn brows settled into a scowl, and the attention of the others was drawn to the side of the room where the organ stood. That's awfully fine, don't you know? remarked Armstrong, leveling his eyeglasses at the picture. It's by somebody great. I don't just remember who. Fine frame, said Mortimer tersely, as he opened the organ and sat down in front of it. And the new owner of the picture felt for the first time his acquaintance with those two men that they were somehow out of harmony with him. He glanced up at the picture with the color mounting in his face, half pained for the friendly gaze that was treated so lightly. He didn't in the least understand himself. But the fingers touching the keys now were not altogether unaccustomed. A soft, sweet strain broke through the room and swelled louder and fuller until it seemed to fill the little log house and be wafted through the open windows to the world outside. Christie stopped in his walk across the room, held by the music. It seemed to express all he had thought and felt during the last few hours. A few chords, and the player abruptly reached up to the pile of songbooks above him. Dashing the book open at random, he began playing, and in a moment, in a rich, sweet tenor, sang. The others drew near, and each took a book and joined in. He holds the key of all unknown, and I am glad. If other hands should hold the key, or if he trusted it to me, I might be sad. The song was a new creed spoken to Christie's soul by a voice that seemed to fit the eyes in the picture. What was the matter with him? He didn't at all know. His whole life was suddenly shaken. It may be that the fact of his long residence alone in that desolate land, with only a few acquaintances, 
had made him more ready to be swayed by this sudden stirring of new thoughts and feelings. Certainly it was that Christy Bailey was not acting like himself, but the others were interested in the singing. It had been a long time since they had an instrument to accompany them, and they enjoyed the sound of their own voices. They would have preferred, perhaps, a book of college songs, or better still, the latest street songs, but since they weren't at hand, and gospel hymns were, they found pleasure even in these. On and on they sang, through hymn after hymn, their voices growing stronger, as they found pieces that had some hint of familiarity. The music filled the house and floated out into the bright Christmas world outside. Presently, Christy felt rather than saw movement at the window, and looking up, beheld it dark with little eager faces of the black children. Their supply of firecrackers had given out and, seeking further celebration, were drawn with delight by the unusual sounds. Christy dropped into a chair and gazed at them. His eyes growing troubled and the frown deepening, he couldn't make it out. He'd been here for some time, and these little children had never ventured to his premises. Now here they were in full force, their faces fairly shining with delight, their eyes rolling with wonder and joy over the music. It seemed like a fulfillment of the prophecy of the letter that came with the organ. He trembled at the possibilities that might be required of him with his newly acquired and unsought-for property. And yet he couldn't help a feeling of pride that all these things were his, and that a girl of such evident refinement and cultivation had taken the trouble to send them. To be sure, she wouldn't have done it at all if she had any idea who or what he was, but that didn't matter. She didn't know, and never would. He saw the children's curious eyes wander over the room and rest here and there delighted, and his own eyes followed theirs. How altogether nice it was! What a desolate hole it was before! Why hadn't he noticed? Amid all these thoughts the concert suddenly closed. The organist turned upon his stool, and addressing the audience in the window, remarked, with a good many flourishes, that finishes the program for today, dear friends. Allow me to announce that a Sunday school will be held in this place on next Sunday afternoon at half past two o'clock, and you are all invited to be present. Do you understand? Half past two, and bring your friends. Now will you all come? Amid many a giggle and a bobbing of round black heads, they answered as one boy and one girl, Yes, sir, and went rollicking down the road to spread the news their bare feet flying through the sand, and vanished as they had come. End of chapter 3